Now, the problem I've got is I've got a furniture problem these days. My chest is in my drawers. But anyway, I'm, I'm <laughs> plodding on from there. Right, brothers, let's move forward. Now, just to say, when it comes to word ministry, if, we, if you've got a pen and paper, you've got your notebook, if we can jot this down, when it comes to word ministry and teaching the Bible, we must understand that it is at four levels. Please jot this down for the sake of your churches, your families. The word has got to go out in the New Testament at four levels. From the front, so it's preached from the front. And uh, uh, many of you will have churches where people battle away to speak from the front. So preach from the front. Secondly, in a small group. So time and again in the New Testament, we see people meeting in small groups. Uh, 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 We're to do that as well. Obviously, Jesus and his disciples are in a small group. Thirdly, and this is where we are all involved, brothers, one-to-one. We are all to be one-to-one sharers. We may not be Bible teachers, but all of us are sharers. So so, so, uh, wonderful to have that one pastor who was here um, uh, 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 under 30. But just to say, we are all to be Bible sharers. We're all to be pastors in terms of the one-to-one work. And then lastly, you take the Bible home and you read it on your own. Um, And we're all to be be modeling that and seeking to do that. I was very struck this morning reading uh, John's Gospel, the way that Jesus, uh, uh, in John chapter 12, the whole world belongs to Jesus, and the next verse is, and it then says, so he washed his disciples' feet. I was overwhelmed with the humility of our Lord. So, So we're to look ourselves at the Bible. So if we got that down, brothers, this is crucial. From the front, in a small group, one to one, and at home. Now, the issue I've just got to say here is this. It's very good writing, isn't it? It's excellent. There you have it. The issue I've just got to say is this. If you come from a strong Christian home, the one to one stuff has happened by osmosis, it happens automatically. But we've got to be far more intentional in a culture, certainly in England and in, and in lots of places in the States, where we're losing the Christian faith. Amen. So the key to it is that, is that actually this one-to-one actually must happen. And here, furthermore, of these four brothers, I think the one-to-one work that all of us are to do as Bible sharers that we'll be training on today, I think it's the most important. Do you know why? Because it is the dynamo of the other three. So, my older brother, who led me to Christ with this math teacher, he took me along to hear a talk. He put me in a small group. He showed me how to read the Bible myself. So, the one-to-one is what drives the other three. And you've all got to see yourself as commissioned as pastors, as one-to-one workers. Again, I may not be a Bible teacher, but I can be a Bible sharer. And that's why I'm saying, as we train today, can you please take on board that that's what we're asking? So you may not have ever seen yourself as crossing the pain line, not just with non-Christians, but also with Christians, and being someone who's going to share the Bible one-to-one and get it open. So that's why, do you remember that comment? Would you like to look at the Bible with me? Let's, all, let's say it together. Ready? One, two, three. Would you like to look at the Bible with me? Now they can go yes or no. They think you're a nutcase anyway. It's okay. But let's just get the Bible open. Now, there are a lot of you guys who are you're sitting here and you're thinking, no, this isn't for me. Yeah, I'm not saying ever, for many of us here, we're never going to be from the front. And it might be that we're not a small group leader, but it's got to be that you're a one-to-one worker. And it's got to be that you take the Bible home and you're reading it. Now, just to say, my ministry, again, as a one-to-one worker, comes out of my personal Bible reading. Um, Because my personal Bible reading is when I pray for people, and then as I pray for them, I think about seeing them. I think about opening the Bible with them. 
Just the next thing to jot down, as a one-to-one -one worker, what am I trying to do? Please jot these three words down. This is what I'm trying to do with people. Explore, explain, encourage. Explore, so with your wives, with kids in the family, with brothers, nephews, whatever it is. Explore, explain, encourage. So explore. Listen, listen, listen. Where is this person at? Explore. I'm a listener. Secondly, explain. Titus 1 verse 1, the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. What is the next thing to try and teach them? Where is this guy at? What's the next thing to teach them? And then lastly, encourage. From your own life, how does that make sense? How are you grappling with that truth? So you put flesh on it. The wonderful thing is on one-to-one -one you can do that. Now we're going to do a bit more on one-to-one -one, uh, in the next session. But please can I give you this vision. Now, in England, I don't know how, I don't want to do this here... But in England, when I get people to score their churches um, in terms of how evangelical churches have done at these four levels, let me tell you what classically the scores are as people look at their churches in England. They go from the front in terms of faithful Bible ministry in conservative reformed churches for which I'm a part. They'll often go eight. They say, you know, my pastor really busted his gut to teach us the Bible well. People really tried on that. Secondly, small groups, they'll often go, well, six or seven. You know, there were people that loved us in a small group. They tried to teach us the Bible. At home, I mean, you never know whether someone's reading the Bible or not at home, but actually there was a real commitment to getting the Bible open. People are really seeking to do that. So often there'll be a score of, 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 of six or five, and one-to-one, one, one or two. It's just not happening in Britain, and it's the biggest issue we face in terms of the gospel going into the next generation. It is the biggest issue, whether we mobilize our men, our laymen, to be one-to-one -one pastors. So we're all to be doing this. Not necessarily from the front, not even necessarily in a small group, but all of us will be saying, I'm getting the Bible open. And today we're about teaching and training to do that. Okay, let's just pick up again where we were yesterday. Do you remember we looked at, can we turn to Romans 1, please, brothers? Romans 1. Just to get in place, again, the fact, now the, all these four things in Romans 1... Again, for your notes, do you remember we looked at this yesterday? We are not going to be reservoirs. I'm not interested today in just stuff flowing into you. I'm interested in it flowing in and flowing out. But going back to Titus 1 verse 1, the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Romans 1, let's just see four issues here that I need to have in place as I'm seeking to motivate myself and others for evangelism. It will be a great offense to people, these truths, and they're absolutely wonderful. So do you remember yesterday we said, is grace true and wonderful? Do you remember that from grace? I've got to, you know, is it not only true, but is it wonderful? Secondly, on Gehenna, on the reality of a place called hell, and Jesus is the theologian of hell, number one, do you believe that Jesus is telling the truth when he talks of it? And secondly, do you love people enough to speak with them? Now, can I just give a mission statement for all of you? Let me give you a mission statement. I was given this by a guy called Frank Retief, who's a bishop an Anglican bishop. Do you know another converted Anglican bishop? It's a miracle. Another converted bishop down in... Do you know, if this goes out on the internet, it's the end of me, but I've had it anyway, so there you go. Another, this guy, Frank Retief, says to his pastors, this is an amazing thing, I'll never forget this. Down in Cape Town in South Africa, he gets his pastors to run their diaries, and they get the men in their churches to run their diaries around this mission statement in the light of a place called Gehenna. This is the mission statement that he gives people. Here it is. Hold on to your seats. People without Christ go to hell. That's it. People without Christ go to hell. So I organize my diary around that truth. People without Christ go to hell. 
And the success or failure of any life is what people do with the person of Christ. And if you don't believe me, ask me again in 10,000 years' time. People without Christ go to hell. Now, we cross the pain line and we believe that. And how does that affect my time management? People without, and, and, Frank, and Frank Retief, this bishop, he says, that goes at the top of your diary for the year. People without Christ go to hell. And then the next question is, brother, this is the issue. The next question is, where are the tears? Where are the tears for the lost? You know, we need more tears. Uh, I, one of the things that put me into the ministry was watching my grandmother die from the 1st to the 8th of April, 1988. And she died absolutely convinced that because she was a good person, God would accept her. I'm good, God will accept me. After she died, my mother found 400 pounds in her purse. She was in an old people's home very close to where we lived. We'd visit her each day. And my mother said as she opened up the purse, ah, 400 pounds, she couldn't move. 400 pounds in the purse, $600, whatever that is. And she said, ah, she liked to keep it by her. It made her feel secure. And at her funeral, my brother was the only other Christian in the, fa in the family. At her funeral, as my brother was doing the reading, he burst into tears in the middle of a reading from Psalm 121. And I was the only one in church who knew why he wept. So it's easy for me to weep because, because the people I love most are not Christian. But I think, again, if we come from the, from the privilege of a Christian home, sometimes we harden our hearts. We need to weep for the lost. Amen. Brothers, we do. We need to weep. When did we last weep? So, grace is a huge motivator. Gehenna, the reality of, the reality of hell. And you see, here's the issue. People all over Detroit, Detroit say, they say this if they're anything like England, because I've lived a decent life, because I've lived, lived a decent life, God will accept me. He was a good man, God will accept him. Don't they say that? Here's the issue. This is the thing to ask them back. If living a decent life is good enough, why did Jesus have to die? That's the question. You know, if, you're good, if, if, if a decent life is good enough, why did Christ have to die? We just let that out there. Let's just ask people that question. He had to die because actually a decent life isn't good enough. And we pray for that conviction of sin. Now, thirdly, now this is a massive issue for you as a one-to-one -one Do you have? You've got the name written down of the person you're going to go through this with in terms of you're going to be training. So yesterday, do you remember? You've got their name down, the person you're going to take this through. Maybe someone in your own family. But here's a third issue that is absolutely crucial. Brothers, glory. Okay? Glory. Can we look, please, at Romans 1, verse 25? Romans 1, verse 25. Absolutely crucial, this issue. So as men, when we're trying to do one-to-one -one with other people, and some of you are going to be launched into this ministry now. You've never seen, that's what I've got to be, but I'm pleading with you to do it for the sake of the gospel and loved ones. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And so what we learn here, here is the word of idols. Idols. And what we're in our lives, we are to live for the glory of God. So 1 Peter 2 verse 9 for your notes. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So I am, I am, to, I am to live for God's glory. But the problem is, I start living for good things that become God things. I start having idols in my life. So you, I want you to think now of men in the church, but you know they're in the church, they're steady, they're there, but there's no joy. And in fact, you ask them on this conference, but they're not here. They're doing something else on Saturday morning. 
And the reason is, brothers, this is massive, their hearts get kidnapped. Their hearts get kidnapped and they live for good things that become God things. And so, so how do I, how do I, first of all, diagnose the idols in my heart and how do I expose them and see them? Okay, two questions, please, to jot down that I want you to ask yourself and your mates. Here are, here, here are two diagnostic questions. We must, and again, you can't do this in groups. We've got to do it one-to-one. -one. Here are the two questions. Number one, what are your daydreams? The Puritan said, if you want to find out how a man is functioning, ask him about his daydreams. So say you're waiting, you're waiting uh, in the morning, uh, um, uh, I don't know, you're, you're filling up your car. And when you stand at the pump and you're just filling up the car, and in that moment, where does your mind go to? Absolutely crucial. And secondly, what are your nightmares? What are the things that, that most worry you, that keep you awake at night? Now, brother, that's absolutely crucial, those things, for diagnosing where your heart is, because your daydreams and nightmares reveal the idols of your heart. And Luther said this, at the heart of all sin is idolatry. So, so your, those things, your daydreams and nightmares, if they're not about the glory of Christ, and it's a battle for all of us, then that is what is stopping you pushing forward as a Christian in evangelism. That's what's holding you up. And by the way, just to say, if you're a father here, your kids know what you're living for. They know whether you're living for Christ or not. So I've got to diagnose this because the family know. Let me tell you uh, what happened with me on this idolatry issue, okay? My daydream was being a fine Christian leader, which is a good thing, but not a God thing. So I wanted to be seen as a fine Christian leader. And that became far too important to me. That became my righteousness. So what happened was this. I found that what happened was I started to lie to people. I was lying to people. They'd say, Rico, have you done this? I'd say, yes, I've done it, when I hadn't done it. But the reason was my salvation was in their good opinion of me and me being a fine Christian leader. And so, you see, my lying, when I'd say I'd done things when I hadn't, breaking of the ninth commandment came out of my idolatry, the first commandment. So when you lie, brother, I had to start saying, when I was lying to people, I had to start saying, not, not just Rico, uh, apologize to the person, say sorry to God. I had to say, Rico, why did you lie? And the reason was, my idolatry was, Rico, you'll be a fine Christian leader. And lots of people will acknowledge you and respect you. And they won't actually see what a depraved animal you are, which is what I am. I'm a depraved animal. And if you don't believe that, you just don't know my heart. You're naive about my heart. John Stott, one man came up to John Stott, the guy in London that I, I work with, and say, uncle, said, John Stott, your books, they've helped me for 25 years. And I just want to say to you how much God has used the work of a righteous man in my life. And John Stott said to this guy, if you knew my heart as God does, you'd spit in my face before you said that. So humility is just honesty. But my problem was, you see, my idol was being respected by you guys as a fine Christian leader. That, and that was a good thing, but it became a God thing, and that was what drove my lying. You see, and I'd be sitting there having, a, having, having you know, daydreams about, oh, being a fine Christian leader. But what should my daydream, my daydream be about? It should be about the glory of Christ. You see, it should be about his honor, not mine. Now, what are your... Let me, I'm going to leave you with that. But with those, when you're trying to unpack someone who is apathetic and someone who is stuck, the reason is their heart has been kidnapped and their heart is elsewhere. And what I've got to do with my idols is, is, is be able to see them.
That's what I've got to do. But, but, but you know, what's happening in our churches is this, and this, this, will be, this is, I know this is a plague across America. Our hearts get kidnapped so easily, and what happens is we have these daydreams, and we then expect God to be a divine waiter who delivers my daydream. And when he doesn't, when he doesn't, I get very angry with him, and I shake my fist at him. So you see, the wrong question is, what is God's plan for my life? That's the wrong question. The right question is, what is God's plan for his world? And God's plan for his world is the glory of Jesus. So, I mean, it's amazing. What is God's plan for his world? Before the beginning of time, he carved my name in his hand. He then sent the Lord Jesus to die, which is no small thing. 2,000 years later, he sent his Holy Spirit, and he opened my blind eyes uh, to who Jesus is. And he gave me worthwhile things to do. That, that's what he's done. And then at the end of time, this is amazing, I'll stand before God and he'll say, Rico Tice, it's good to see you. You've been on my mind a very long time. And that's the glory of God and that's what we live for. We live to bring people to know Jesus and to become like Jesus. So no one can take that daydream away from you, which is, oh Lord, whatever happens to me, may I grow more like Christ. So, in your one-to-one work, let me give you an absolute core verse. Please write it down as a one-to-one guy. Okay, this is what you've got to get in place. Romans 8, 28, 29. Romans 8, 28, 29. So, guys, Josiah, guys, get it down here at the front here. This is a key verse. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for my good. But what is my good? Verse 29, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. So, God organizes everything in my life. Whatever he, whatever, nothing in my life hasn't been across his desk, and it comes across his desk to make me more godly. So in my one-to-one work, brothers, there are only two things that matter in life. One, I'm going to heaven when the pain will be over of this life. I'm going to go to heaven where I'll be thoroughly conformed to the likeness of Christ. But secondly, what does it mean to be godly now? So the only two things in life are, one, I'm going to heaven, the pain will be over, the battle will be over, Secondly, well, what does it mean to be godly now in this situation that I'm now facing? And for some of you, maybe you're facing a terminal illness or a loved one's illness. That's brutal. But God is in control, and he conforms all, and, and everything, he's working for my godliness. So let's say on the way back to Cleveland tonight, Paul and I have a car crash, and I lose both my legs. And when you come and see me in hospital, I've lost both my legs, you say this to me. You say, Rico, you're going to heaven. You're going to get new legs in heaven. In the meantime, what does it mean to be godly now without legs? For example, let's start with the hotel staff. What does it mean to represent Christ and be godly at this moment? Now, you've got to get the roof on of God's sovereignty before the storm hits. You've got to get that roof on now, because I can't teach you that when you've lost your legs. But if I lose my legs today, on the way back to Cleveland, when you see me, you say, Rico, you'll get new legs in heaven in the new creation. You'll have a new body. In the meantime, what does it now mean to be godly without legs? You see, and in everything, we're living for the glory of Christ. And no one, whatever your health, whatever happens to you, can stop you doing that, whether you have a job or not, whatever situation you're in. So, brothers, the glory of God, it's very, you know, and you see, certainly in the church in England, this is what's happened in England, physical health is more important than spiritual health. Physical appearance is more important than spiritual character. Approval of people is more important than thankfulness to God. Status and wealth in the church are more important than identity in Christ. And I've got to keep asking myself, what has captivated my little kingdom, my heart? 
You know, it's amazing at All Souls, at the church I work at, let me tell you who gets married. The pretty girls get married, not the godly ones. The men keep marrying the pretty girls. They don't marry the girls that are godly. Where are their hearts? You know, what am I sat on? Financial ease, loving family, career success? Now, what I've got to do with myself and others is I've got to fight the glory wars. So that's what this is, the glory wars. What are you daydreaming about? What are your idols? Let's start moving that forward. Let's start identifying those idols. Tim Keller says, once you've spotted your idols, you're 50% of the way there. You see, I know that being honored by other men and status by other men is very important to me, not least because, you know, um, when I got converted at 15, 16, there was no one there who acknowledged what I'd done, particularly of the adult age. My dad was in tobacco. So suddenly I didn't have anyone approving for me, and therefore in my heart, getting people's approval became very, very important. I've just got to say no, but it is the Lord Jesus I do this for. You know, that's my battle, but I can see the battle now. I know what my idols are. I know what drives my lying. I know it's trying to impress men that drives my lying. I know that. And because I know that, I can disempower the idol. Huge. Next one, brothers. Okay, identify the idols. Luther, all sin comes out of idolatry. If you're lying, if there's lust, if the rest of it, what's driving it underneath? Last one, brothers, as we look down, lastly, godliness. The last thing that's to, to, um, uh, uh, here is godliness. In terms of, again, what drives our, 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 our evangelism, have a look at Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what is it that makes God most angry? With your delightful neighbors and your colleagues, and they're lovely men, but they're not Christian, why is it that they are at the heart of God's wrath? It's because they suppress the truth about Jesus. We think that, the, that what makes God most angry is jealousy or hatred or murder. I mean, of course those things anger him in his world, and they're an offense to him. But what makes God most angry is the suppression of the truth about his son. Uh, my nephew, I, I, he's a great guy, he's a rugby player, he's 16 years old. Let's say that he'd come with me on this trip. And just out on the road outside, just as, as we were uh, heading out, um, uh, uh, there, just maybe in the car park. Actually, a car came, came spinning into the car park out of control. It comes spinning in, and my nephew sees you standing in its path. He runs across, he pushes you out the way of the car. As he does that, the car hits him, and it kills him. He's lying there dead. And you then turn around, and you say, there was no need for him to do that. I was absolutely fine. When I know, and actually even you know, that he saved your life. You say, I didn't need that. Now, just try and... How would that feel with a loved, a loved member of your family if they laid their life down and the person, who'd, the person who'd been saved said, I didn't need it. Now, what makes God most angry is that God has, has, has sent his son to die and people around us say, do you know what? I've lived a decent life. I don't need it. I'm fine. There is nothing that makes God more angry because they suppress the truth about Jesus. So at the heart of godliness, what does it mean to be godliness? Well, obviously the opposite. It's not suppressing the truth. So, so, so here's the issue. Do jot this down. You cannot be godly. You cannot be godly and not be concerned for the lost. God was so concerned for the lost, he sent his son to die. So at the heart of being like God is getting the message out about Jesus. You cannot be godly and not be concerned for the lost. God was so concerned for the lost, he sent his son to die. So here's the issue. I must stop separating 
holiness and evangelism. So I, don't, I can't speak about the church in Detroit. But let me tell you, in my church in London and the churches in England, evangelicals, because they, they, they find it difficult to evangelize, have developed a form of godliness that means they never have to evangelize. But at the heart of godliness is getting the message out. It's crossing the pain line. It's saying, can I look at the Bible with you? That's at the heart of godliness. Why is it the heart of godliness? Because it's being like God. Exhibit A, Jesus. God sent his son to the world. And I'm saying, a lot of you, or that guy you've written their name down, have a model of godliness that doesn't include evangelism. And at the heart of godliness is telling other people. It really is. So, so those things in, in place, those four. So, uh, 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 and, 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 and just to say, look, I, again, I can't speak for this area, but, but um, how do people justify not doing evangelism? This is what they say. So you might want to jot this down because then it, it knocks them back. Okay, but this is what people say in, in England. Evangelicals say about not doing evangelism. They say this. My faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life, but I wouldn't dream of imposing it on anyone else. Is that right? My faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life, but I wouldn't dream of imposing it on anyone else. So actually, they are functional universalists. They don't really believe in hell. They live next door to someone for 25 years. They go to their funeral. The person goes straight to hell to pay for their own sin. They've never said anything because they justify it by saying, my faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life. I wouldn't dream of imposing it on anyone else. And what we're going to do, brothers, is this. In our generation, we are going to say, the Lord Jesus is going to be an unavoidable issue. That's what we do. We are, in the people around us, we make Jesus an unavoidable issue. And just before we move in now, just as we do that, let's get one verse that's absolutely crucial for this. So can we turn, please, to Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. And again, a crucial verse for your one-to-one -one training if you know this, this is not just for you. But write this down. This changed my life on evangelism. Okay? Acts 17. This is absolutely crucial in terms of us mobilizing. And let's go to verse 26 of Acts 17. So what do we learn here? From one man, here is Paul in Athens... God made every nation of men, so from Adam he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined, this is amazing, the time set for them and they, the exact places where they should live. So, you, your neighbors, your colleagues at work, the people at the five-a-side soccer that you go to on, sun, on Saturday morning, everyone, do you see the verse? He determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. Now, hold on to your seats. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Next verse, do you see verse 27? Brilliant training verse. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In other words, what is going on in history is evangelism. God has made the world, and he wants people to hear about his son. So when I'm sitting here, and I'm... Where I put the board rubber? Here, I'll use my hanky. When I'm sitting here, okay, and, uh, and, I've, and, I've got, and I've got this issue of here I am, and I'm deciding whether I'm going to jump off into evangelize, evangelism and cross the pain line, what am I held by? I'm held by grace 
and my identity in the grace of God. You've got to teach people this. Secondly, I'm held by God's sovereignty. So God is sovereign in my life. Okay? So that means, as I'm here, I'm, I'm just going to jump off. I'm going I'm to speak about it. The fact that I know that God has preordained my neighbors to be living there, he's put them there to be reached. So my wife and I, for example, I'm just saying, we're just thrilled. A Muslim couple have moved in opposite us. They think they're there to make a living in London. <laughs> they're not. They're there to be reached. On my flight over to here, I sat down. There was a, a woman, I guess about 55, a nurse, who sat down with me. We had a long chat about the gospel. She said to me, well, she said, it was very weird, she said. I wasn't meant to be on this flight at all, but my flight got delayed, and then I got delayed to have to go via Chicago. I don't know why it happened. I sat there and thought, I know why it happened. <laughs> so when I do, now this is crucial. When I'm doing evangelism, God has gone before. He has organized it. So that Muslim couple, as my wife and I pray, we say, Lord, you've put them there. You've put them there to be reached. Ben, the man in the cafe next door to him, I, he, he came to Christ. And I led him to Christ just about a couple of weeks before he died. The Lord opened his blind eyes. I took communion. Well, I'd known him for 14 years. At last, he opened up. God had organized he was there to be led to Christ. God had opened his eyes. So as I jump off, one is my identity is in the grace of God. Whether you accept or reject me, that doesn't make me valuable. What makes me valuable is the gospel. Secondly, the sovereignty of God. God has organized it. Now, you live in a culture, and so do I, much more me than you, that says, oh, you know, Christianity is about as important as croquet. You know, it's, got no, it's just a funny little thing to do. No. What's going on in this world is people are coming under the authority of Jesus in him who all things hold together. Once I believe that about, about evangelism, it transforms my opportunity. So I'm excited about flying back to Cleveland. I'm going from Cleveland to Chicago on Monday morning because I want to see who the Lord's going to put next to me. And then in the plane flight. I'm really excited about it because the Lord will have organized it and I just move into that opportunity. It transforms your confidence. Now, the third thing on our confidence, can we turn to it? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, everybody. Brothers, 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just as we move on. Have you got those four Gs down? We'll come back to them later. Grace, Gehenna, glory, godliness. Can we have them written down? Because they're going to be driving us through the day. But 2 Corinthians 4. So we looked at this passage yesterday. And... Uh, can you please tell me what is our, what is, uh, as, we, as we look at evangelism in 2 Corinthians 4, what are the things we're to be remembering about how we evangelize? What, do you remember from verses 5 and 6 what the phrase were? What was it? What do we do and what does God do? We preach Christ and God opens blind eyes. Have we all got that, guys? So we're going to get the Bible open, and as we do that, God will do the miracle and open blind eyes. So we just heard, we heard earlier, didn't we? There was a course being run. People invited, you know. Who's the nephew? Is the nephew here? Jordan, was it you? We, no, who was the... Uh, uh, oh, it was you, brother. The, the, uh, it's Jordan, isn't it? What's your name again, brother? Elliot. Elliot. Oh, brother, I've had a mental block. I'm sorry. It's Elliot was there. But, you know, so Elliot's there, but God opens blind eyes. So we preach Christ. God opens blind eyes. Okay, so that, that's, that's our methodology. Now, what I just want you to do in pairs, could you introduce yourself to the man next to you, just so that you two, and then I want you to find three applications on how we're to preach Christ from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. So there should be at least three applications there. Just introduce yourself to the person next to you. 
and then find three applications. Sorry, brother, I had a block. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. Brother, what exactly are we looking at? Here? You're looking at if we're to preach Christ, how are we meant to be preaching Christ from the passage? There'll be at least three from, things from one, down, one to six. One to six. So, brothers, from one to six, how are we to preach Christ? As we preach Christ, how are we to do it from one to six? Keep going, that'd be great. What advice does the passage give us about how we're to do this? One to one, particularly. So, bro, I just. 